Chapter Twenty Eight of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Eight. J. S. R. It was surprising how little time it took, after all, to dismantle the pretty home in Kensett Square and make it look utterly unhomelike. Oh, there was no indecorous haste. Indeed, everything was done with the utmost order and with a view to all the proprieties. There was a farewell gathering in the church parlors, where many wept honest tears of regret, and some made dishonest speeches of regret. There was presented a very elegant silver dinner service, the largest donors on the list of names presented with it being those from whom it was very hard to receive gifts. But for the grace of Jesus Christ bestowed in unusual measure for the needs of this very hour, the offerings would certainly have been declined." As it was, the minister's voice was kind and calm as he expressed their united thanks to all who intended kindness. The minister's wife's eyes flashed suspiciously during this ceremony, but when, ten minutes afterward, the widow porter brought, done up in a bit of newspaper, a pair of rather coarse and ill-shaped baby socks which her own hands had fashioned after the hard day's work was done, those same eyes filled with tears, and the widow porter's thanks were such as she will remember." Of course, this episode was not allowed to close without a carefully prepared paper commencing with, Whereas, it has pleased Providence to so order that it is expedient for our beloved pastor, the Reverend John Remington, to remove to another field of labor, be it resolved that. And then followed the long list of carefully planned, gracefully worded resolutions. Alec Palmer had returned just in time to give his skillful mind to the work of formulating them, and had spent much thought and care upon them, writing and rewriting until he was more than weary of them all. He was making what was, for him, an unusual effort to please, not his pastor, nor yet the Kensett Square congregation, but Elsie Chilton. He had pushed the matter with relentless hand to a successful issue, and now had time to feel a degree of sorrow for Elsie's evident suffering. There had actually been times when he told himself that had he realized how entirely she was bound up in the Remington's household, he would not have been so precipitate. Of course, he knew this to be false, because it was what he called her infatuation over them which had hurried him on. He was altogether complacent over the result of his skill, and could afford to indulge himself in an imaginary regret that such effort had been necessary, or at least, that it had been necessary for him to play so prominent a part. A truth to tell, this phase of the situation troubled him not a little. For instance, he had been exceedingly annoyed that his name had had to appear on that obnoxious paper, even obliged to head the list. Given the possibility of Elsie's ever knowing it, he did not like to think of what might result, but he reflected that it was not in the least probable that she ever would know it. The actual signers were pledged to stand by one another and keep their own counsel, and the Remingtons would certainly not be likely to show that paper or talk about it. He left out of consideration the fact that Aunt Hannah, having had long experience in truth-telling, knew how to answer only the truth to directly put questions. In fact, he left Aunt Hannah out of the question entirely, as an old woman who was quite beneath his consideration. But he had his anxious hours nevertheless. Twice, during that enforced absence, he had written to Elsie hurried little notes, expressive of his extreme regret that he must be away at such time, and assuring her that certain rumors which he had heard relative to the state of things in the Kensett Square Church, while they did not surprise him, were matters for sincere regret, especially on her account. He trusted that nothing unkind had been done, 
and that nobody with a zeal not according to knowledge had said or done anything to bring the pastor to so sudden a departure. For himself, while he could wish that he was present to comfort her, he could not but, at the same time, be glad that his continued absence would furnish her proof, if indeed she needed proof, that certainly he had nothing to do with the peculiar state of things. The only answer which Elsie had returned to these notes had been that long, carefully worded one of which I told you, and which, you will remember, he did not receive. Her silence troubled him somewhat, until Mrs. Chilton wrote of her illness, and then of her sudden departure to the country. The poor child, wrote Mrs. Chilton, is utterly worn out in body and mind, worrying over the prospective departure of her friends. It is really extraordinary what a hold they have gotten upon her affections. I know somebody who will have to be very patient and very cautious for a little time. Her nervous system is so overwrought by all these matters that if you go to being exacting and, well, almost jealous, you know I shall not answer for the consequences. And Mr. Palmer, who had been absent from Elsie long enough to begin to realize something of what she really was to him, had resolved to be very patient indeed, and very magnanimous. He would say nothing to Elsie when they met about this recent and trying past. He would not even refer to that last vexation when she actually went away to attend a dying child, though he had been absent for two weeks and had engaged to be with her early in the evening. Neither would he say anything about her having gone with Mr. Mason on this errand. Truth to tell, when he thought of Elsie and of the look which certain things had the power to bring into her eyes, he decided that to be silent on that subject was simply common prudence. He returned, as I said, but the day before the public meeting in which the series of resolutions were presented. He devoted all his time to the preparation of them, and was conspicuous on that public occasion as Mr. Remington's friend and earnest well-wisher. It was a trial to him that Elsie did not appear. He resolved not to see her until after the train had departed which would bear away her friends, and then to go to her in all tenderness, and be the one to soothe her first hours of loneliness and grief. He would make himself as necessary to her hours of sorrow as he had been, heretofore, to her hours of pleasure. Then, when the time came to speak of that, he would hasten their marriage with all speed. Business should call him abroad in a few months. In fact, he would make it imperatively demand his presence, and that should be his plea for hastening their plans. Elsie had always wanted to travel in Italy. She should now have the opportunity— it was, under the circumstances, the best possible thing to do. He would hasten her away from all present interests, foreign to his taste, all hateful sights and sounds which were stirring her blood to unhealthful throbbings. She should go where she would not hear of saloons, nor tenement houses, nor drunken, cruel fathers, nor managing, aspiring women, nor fanatical young men. She should go where there would be only graceful lakes and fairy-like boats in which to float down them, and lovely valleys in which to dream, and gorgeous sunsets on which to gaze, and flowers, and grace, and sweet leisure, and perfumed air. It was such a life for which she was fitted. He had rescued her from a fanaticism which would become terrible to her when once she was fairly rid of the fevered air of reform which she had been breathing for the past few months so he rounded his periods carefully, and omitted no word or act calculated to show outward respect to the departing pastor, even keeping his carriage waiting, with many others, on that last morning at the depot. And Elsie, when she heard of it all, had said only this under her breath, false to the last, in little and unnecessary things, as well as in those necessary to carry out his schemes. 
The note which she received that evening was as carefully worded as the resolutions had been. He knew she must be worn and sad, but might he not come? He would not detain her late, for he was sure she needed rest, but it had been so long since he had seen her. He ignored utterly the possibility that there might be such a thing as a coldness between them. In fact, he did not honestly believe that there was any coldness which a half-hour of his inimitable petting would not remove. For he could be very tender and gracious, this man, when he chose. None knew that better than Elsie. Yet her face had paled in indignation over this note. Ever since that first day of her return, when Aunt Hannah had suddenly and unwittingly revealed to her something of the true character of the man to whom she had been engaged, she had felt herself humiliated in having ever been in such relations to him. Up to that hour, having settled her own part with her conscience, once for all, she had had time to be sorry for him. As she walked swiftly away from Aunt Hannah's keen eyes, she said, almost aloud, "'He is actually a liar. I am disgraced in my own eyes by having my name coupled with such as he.' She replied to his note, with such promptness that he smiled, well pleased, when the messenger came. Then he held the sheet up before his astonished eyes, and read and re-read, seemingly unable to believe his senses. Yet the note was not long. It was only this. Mr. Palmer, sir, your note received just now amazes me. You must surely have received the long letter in which I explained in detail why we must be only friends hereafter. I am sorry that you did not understand it. I am sorry that you force me to be entirely frank. I wish now to say that I decline from this time forth to acknowledge you as among my list of acquaintances. I have ceased to respect you. I have found that you can be untrue, on occasion, even to your written word. I need not particularize, for you at least know the facts. Yet to relieve your mind from any doubt in the matter, I will simply say that I have seen the letter which was sent to my pastor. I have read carefully the list of names, and noted what one headed that list. With this fact in mind, recall the lines which you wrote to me in regard to this very letter. Why was there need to soil the page written to me with deliberate falsehood? What did you hope to accomplish by it? After this, I need only sign myself, Elsie Chilton. You will doubtless agree with me that this was a somewhat startling letter for a man to receive from a lady whom he confidently expected to take to Europe as his bride in less than two months from that date. I am tempted to let you hear a few sentences of a conversation which took place in the Chilton household a few hours thereafter. No child of mine shall play hide-and-seek with a gentleman in this ridiculous way, I can assure you. I command you to write, as your mother has suggested, and invite Alec Palmer to dine with us tonight and then to receive him as you know you ought, in view of the relations between you. We will have no more of these disgraceful scenes. Do you fully understand me? This from Robert Chilton, in a great rage. Then Elsie's quiet, pale, grave. Father. She used the name but rarely. It was generally the more familiar, more childish, Papa. Father, had you given me the opportunity when I asked the other day, you would have better understood the relations between Mr. Palmer and myself. I will write a note for Mamma, inviting any person to dine with her whom she wishes to entertain, signing her name to the note. But Mr. Palmer is, and can be, no guest of mine. I will certainly meet him, if you desire, in a way befitting the relation between us, which is that of strangers. I neither like, nor admire, nor respect Mr. Palmer. He can never be reckoned among my friends again. 
He perfectly understands this. I have been entirely frank with him, and if he chooses to ignore my words, as he has so frequently done before, when occasion offered, he must be prepared to endure the embarrassment which will certainly follow. Father, I am not a child. I am your daughter, it is true, and in all things right I will obey you. But the days have surely gone by when a father forces his daughter to marry a man who has deceived her and whom she despises. I do not suppose it is necessary to say this to you, but perhaps I should tell you frankly, that if I knew I should be sent out from my father's house to-night never to return, unless I obeyed your wishes in this respect, I should have to go, because to do otherwise would be to go contrary to the plain directions of my father in heaven, whom you, sir, have taught me from a child to obey. And then Elsie Chilton went away to her own room. She is a born idiot, said her stepmother, with paling lips. This accounts for Alec's wild letter which he sent me. But even yet I may be able to patch it up if you will help me. Those Remingtons are gone, that is a great step in advance, and there is no other fanatic here to influence her. Was there not? Even at that moment there waited for her in the parlor a very great fanatic indeed. No other than Fern Redpath, to whom Elsie presently came, holding her excitement in check to hear from this friend the truth about something else which had also excited her. Oh, Fern, is what I have heard true? Are you really going to speak in the opera house? I am, indeed. I am going to do what I said I never would, go on the platform in my own city and speak to the people. I have within the last few weeks been so roused, so fairly burned through and through with the enormity of this thing, this evil in our midst, that it seems to me as though the very stones would cry out if women held their peace much longer. I am not going to make a speech." I am going to tell them a story, a story of facts, of things which are occurring under their very eyes, in which their own sons and daughters are engaged. It is a terrible story, Elsie. You do not know the half nor the quarter of it. You do not know, for instance, that my poor boy Jack, for whom I have been working and praying, was drugged last night, and lies in a state of beastly intoxication to-day, and his mother dying and calling for him. Will not that be a story for the Opera House listeners to hear? Fern, tell me, why did you go to the opera house? Would not a church, the lecture room of a church, have served your purpose better? We thought of that at first, and tried for it, but no lecture room large enough could be secured. The Kensett Square Church will not open its lecture room to any temperance story told by a woman, even though the story be vouched for as true. Nothing less than a cantata or an operetta can be admitted there. Think of it, Elsie, the folly of it all. Last week an operetta, with ladies dressed like fairies and goblins, and I don't know what, certainly not like human beings, and a delighted crowd to listen to their songs and recitations and see their dancing. But because I want to appear in a plain black dress made close to the throat and close to the wrists, and tell that same company about the things which are taking place around the corner from their own homes, things which would have to do with the future of immortal souls, it becomes unwomanly. Oh, Elsie! Will you do something for me? I do so long to have you stand by me now. What can I do? You know I would do it if I could. But, Fern, I am not like you. I cannot speak before a dozen people, ever, about anything. No, you cannot speak. At least, you think you cannot. It may be that you have not been called to do so. But I think I have been. 
I am going to tell my story tonight as simply as I can, and I want a woman with me, a woman to pray. Earl Mason would, but he says it ought to be a woman. Elsie, can you pray? A moment of solemn silence, and then Elsie, almost as white as the marble bust near which she stood, spoke again. Yes, I can pray, and I will. Fern, you may depend upon me tonight. It was just at that moment that they, coming from different ways, paused to take a good-night look at the sleeping king. They, being Aunt Hannah and Martha and John. Perhaps I ought to say that there were four of them, for Aunt Hepsy hovered in the near distance, intent on some work for the young king. Talk about slaves and tyrants. If ever there was a tyrant in the flesh, his name was John Remington, Jr., and the most devoted and utterly self-forgetful of his many slaves was Aunt Hepsy Stone. The intensity of her devotion had its rise in what we are pleased to call an accidental circumstance. Much discussion had been had between this new father and mother as to the newcomer's middle name. Of course, he was to be John Remington. Thus much had been decreed from the very first. The young mother having an air of firmness and decision about her whenever the subject was hinted at, which discouraged any other suggestion. But a middle name she was willing to talk over, and held herself open to conviction. At least, she received proposals, graciously enough, but none of them suited her. A name is such an important thing, she said. You cannot cast it aside after childhood is over, and try another. It is a lifelong companion, and stays behind, even after you are done with this part of life. Sometimes is immortal. This last with a fond look at the young immortal among the blankets, a look which said as plainly as words could have done, He will glorify his name, mark my words. Then I should think you would want something less commonplace and prosaic than John for him, would the amused father say, partly in earnest, and partly to see the new dignity on the mother's face, and hear it in her voice, as she said, I like John. I always have. I like it better than any other name. Beside, it was the name of the beloved disciple, you know. I want my John to be another of whom it shall be said, that disciple whom Jesus loved. Then after a little, Middle names are important because of the initials. J.R., that is too short. We need something which will slip in between those two letters and harmonize. I should like your initials, J.S.R., only your middle name is simply horrid. I always dislike the sound of Sylvester. My baby shall never bear it. So every name in the college catalogues and church records was by turns discussed and abandoned, until it began to seem that there was no name as yet coined good enough for the new baby. They were looking, one evening, at an ancient engraving, a massive shield with its Latin motto and its curious carvings, and as they looked the minister said, slowly, meditatively, as though thinking aloud instead of talking, He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And the mother, looking at the shield, and then at the sleeping baby, thinking of the weary, dangerous way the small feet must travel, longing, oh so earnestly, that he might be shielded even by that Almighty One, said suddenly, Oh, John, let us give him Shield for his middle name. John Shield Remington. That will give him the same initials as yours, and it is not a commonplace name. It is dignified, and at the same time simple and unpretentious, and it cannot be twisted into some silly diminutive. Beside, when he is old enough, we can tell him how he came to choose it. The Lord God is a sun and shield, quoted the father, smiling. It is an original name, certainly, but I like it. 
Thus was the momentous question settled. A few days later, when Aunt Hepsy took the morsel in her arms, which was henceforth to rule her life, and tried to look grim and sensible, and do her best at convincing this silly father and mother that whatever Hannah might do, she was by all means determined that she would not go into her dotage and make a fool of herself over that baby. Looking down on its sweet helplessness, at the blueness of its eyes, and the utter trustfulness with which it lay in her arms, something like a very tremor sounded in her voice as she asked, "'What is his name?' "'John Shield Remington,' said the mother promptly. It was the first time she had been able to speak it in full, as a matter of information. She was quite unprepared for the effect produced. Aunt Hepsy gave so sudden a start as to nearly upset the baby, and said, "'What?' almost as sharply as though she had been a gun and had exploded. "'John Shield Remington,' repeated the wondering mother, lingering over the syllables. "'Don't you like the name? I do very much.' Aunt Hepsy's face was working strangely. The wrinkles about her mouth twitched and quivered. She struggled with her throat, with her eyes, with her voice, and at last said in tones which shook with feeling, the while two tears rolled slowly down, dropping one on her nose, the other plump on the baby's cheek. I didn't expect it, nor dream it, but I'll never forget it, never, and the boy will not have reason to regret it. Neither will his father and mother, mind you that." whereupon she laid the bundle of flannel very unceremoniously in Aunt Hannah's arms and left the room. "'Poor dear heart,' said that woman, very gently, as she skillfully manipulated the flannel and arranged the long white robes. "'To think that we should never once have thought of it, and I knew it so well, but it went out of my mind more than a quarter of a century ago, and to think that she cares so much.' "'What is it?' asked John and Maddie in the same breath. "'Why,' His name was Shield, Joab Shield Stone. It was his mother's family name, you know. She belonged to the Shields of New England. He liked that name, Joab did. I've heard him speak it with a kind of lingering tenderness many a time. He was uncommonly fond of his mother, Joab was. And to think that I should have forgotten. But I didn't know that Hepsy cared about such things. We don't know one another very well in this world, after all. The young father and mother looked at each other, half amused, half embarrassed. They had not thought of Joab Stone. Mattie had never thought of him twice in her life. To John he was a dream of an early childhood that had faded long ago. They had neither of them so much as known that he laid any claim to the name of Shield, and here they were supposed to have named their baby for him. And then to think that Aunt Hepsy cared, she of all women indulging in such tender sentiment over a name— the baby's cheek was still wet with that one tear she had dropped. As the mother leaned over to brush it away, the father spoke in a low, moved tone. He was a good man, Maddie, a pure-hearted, God-fearing, faithful man. Shall we keep the accidental part of a sacred secret between us and consider our baby named for him? I like to have it so, said Maddie gently. I am so glad that Aunt Hepsy cares. Well, they might have been. Even she did not know how utterly unselfish and tender and patient and absorbed she could become over that small morsel of humanity who had come into her heart. But God knew, and I like to think that he planned this sweet surprise in her old age for Aunt Hopsy Stone. So they stood that evening, beside his crib, taking a good-night look at John Shield Remington, Aunt Hannah, and Martha, and John. Aunt Hepsy had been there and gone, intent on some bit of flannel which she believed should be aired for the morrow's use, 
only by her own careful hands. "'Young mothers don't understand. How should they?' she had said as she bustled away. But the look which she had bestowed on Martha, as she said the words, had been full of lingering tenderness which had often shone in her eyes during these days. "'Martha is maturing very well indeed,' she had confessed to Aunt Hannah, but a few days before. She did not know, but she was as good a choice on the whole as they could have had for the baby's mother. "'I should think as much,' the minister had said, but he laughed as he said it, and they had all laughed, and some way it was very easy to be patient with Aunt Hepsy nowadays. Tonight, though, Mattie's face had a tender sadness upon it. "'I thought I should hear from Elsie this evening,' she said. "'My heart aches for her. It seems so strange that we should have had to leave her just now in the hour of peril. I cannot like to think of her as that man's wife, and yet I am afraid she will marry him.' The world, the flesh, and her stepmother will be too much for her, I am afraid. John, dear, I really believe he is going to have dark hair like yours. I shall be so glad of that. Whom do you mean, Maddie? Alec Palmer? I had an impression that his was the last masculine you mentioned. This was the minister's merry reply, and then they laughed a little, as people will sometimes, even when grave thoughts are pressing up behind the gaiety. John Remington's face sobered almost immediately. "'I hope he will be a better man than I have been, Mattie, and will be able to do some of his father's work, accomplish where I have failed. I hope he will preach the gospel, and will succeed in what I have only attempted.' "'If he grows up to be as good and true and brave a man as his father, I shall be quite, quite satisfied.' This from Mattie, with a firm clasp of the hand that was resting on her shoulder." I do not like to hear you say you have failed. If you have, the Lord Jesus did. They would not endure his preaching, you know. And beside, said Aunt Hannah, in the grim tone, which with her always covered strong feeling, you are rather young yet to be a patriarch. I've no objections to the child being as good a man as you please, and doing plenty of his own work, or rather the Lord's. But you two, John and Martha, have just begun life. It is all before you, as it were. Don't go to talking as though you had left it behind and finished your course and kept the faith and were already watching out for the crown. You haven't got there yet, and it's more than likely you will have plenty of hard rubs and tugs before you do. And if I were you, I wouldn't try to shoulder too much of that child Elsie's burdens, either. Not the Lord's end, I mean. I tell you he'll take care of his own, even though you and I are not there to help." If he had wanted you by her side any longer, he would have had you stay. He manages things. Just let us remember that. John Remington reached forth his unoccupied arm and drew Aunt Hannah into his embrace as he said with a cheerful laugh, Aunt Hannah, what do you suppose Martha and I would do without your strong common sense to ballast us? Aunt Hepsy bustled in at the moment. I do wish you wouldn't talk and laugh right over his head, she said. It isn't good for a baby's nerves. The End End of Chapter 28 and End of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston